This is Malcolm McDonald, co-author of Malcolm McDonald on Value Propositions, How to Develop Them, How to Quantify Them. And you're listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas in order to succeed in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. Also, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Blinkist. Blinkist is an app that takes the key insights from the best nonfiction books and distills them into a format that you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes on your smartphone. Several of the books featured on the Marketing Book Podcast are on Blinkist. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer for Marketing Book Podcast listeners where you can sign up for free at Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast. Blinkist is spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. And if you opt for the paid version, you'll get an additional 20% off, but only if you go to Blinkist.com slash marketingbookpodcast or just click on the link at marketingbookpodcast.com. And now on with the show. Today, we welcome Professor Malcolm McDonald back to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about the book he has co-authored with Grant Oliver, Malcolm McDonald on Value Propositions, How to Develop Them, How to Quantify Them, published by Kogan Page. Professor Malcolm McDonald enjoys a global reputation as a leading authority on marketing. He is Emeritus Professor at Cranfield University and Honorary Professor at Warwick Business School. He's been a consultant to many major corporations on almost every continent in the areas of strategic marketing, marketing planning, market segmentation, international marketing, and marketing accountability. Professor McDonald is also chairman of six companies and works with the operating boards of some of the world's leading multinational corporations. And interesting facts, he's the author of 46 books, and he was listed as one of the UK's top 10 business consultants by the Times. Professor, congratulations on Malcolm McDonald on Value Propositions, and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. Well, good afternoon, Douglas, from Oxford in England. And thank you for that wonderful introduction, Douglas. It uh, certainly warmed my heart to hear somebody speaking so nicely about me. As Philip Kotler once said when uh, he introduced, he was introduced at a conference, he said, of all the introductions I've had over my 86 years, he said, that was definitely the most recent. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll take whatever uh, accolades I can. I should mention that you were a guest on episode 98 of the Marketing Book Podcast, and now we're over uh, episode 200, so you needn't wait 100 episodes to keep coming back on the podcast. But in the process of doing that, you were able, nice enough, to introduce me to Dr. Philip Kotler, and I interviewed him for the 100th episode, and uh, then I later interviewed him for his autobiography, and I also see that he endorsed this book. And before we go much further, I just want to make sure I've really gotten the attention of all those marketers who are listening. As it relates to value propositions, I want to read from page 50, where it says, 
It is this lack of focus on value proposition preparation that has led to the increasing isolation of marketing from the real world of customers and to the growing feeling that marketing as a discipline has somehow lost the plot. So in that episode where I interviewed you previously, it was all about your second edition of your book, Malcolm McDonald on marketing planning. And in celebration of the 200th episode, I gave a talk and uh, about some of the key points from the first 200 books. And I included a few slides about your book. And I continue to talk about it. And I want to mentioned what they are because that book and this book, I, if you don't mind, I, th- I think they're very much the companion pieces. You reference one from the other. And that is you talk about how companies, when they're doing their marketing planning, they need to get the answers to two simple questions. And the first one is, what are your key target markets in order of priority? And in each one, what are your organization's sources of differential advantages. And when I present those two questions to groups, they're amazed that a whole marketing plan can be based on that. And then I go on to say, well, you you do need to read his entire book to figure out how to get those the answers to those. But let's start out and explain for folks that are not familiar with it, what is a value proposition? Well, there are two parts to it, really, Douglas. The first is the process itself And I describe it as follows, the supplier working with the customer to uncover unidentified needs and opportunities for value creation based on an in-depth understanding of the customer's business and markets in such a way that these are translated into monetary terms. That's the process you have to go through. But our definition of a financially quantified value proposition is much simpler. It's the translation of the supplier's offers into monetary terms and the demonstration of their contribution to the customer's profitability. It's as simple as that, Douglas. So explain why value propositions are so important and why do you think that they're lacking in their use or the the understanding of marketers? Well, I think I could answer this as briefly as I can, but five points that I'd like to make about why we desperately need a book on financially quantified value propositions. First point I want to make is that I might have mentioned it during our last interview, but I've been running our key account management research club at Cranfield for over 20 years. It's known as strategic account management, of course, in America. Same thing. And you know, it's sponsored by companies like 3M and Rolls-Royce and lots of other famous companies. So we're deeply into that domain and we know what the problems and issues are. And I can tell you that only 1% of suppliers are sufficiently differentiated and offer real value to their customers, what what I call, what we call, creating advantage rather than just helping them avoid disadvantage. That 1% of suppliers, customers are prepared to pay a premium of between 15 and 25% to deal with them. The rest are forced to trade on price because customers know they can get similar goods and services from any supplier anywhere. But this discounting business has a devastating impact on profits. I mean, for example, if you've got a product costing $10 with a margin of $2, you need an increase of a third in your sales to make the same profit if you only give a 5% discount. The 10% discount, you require a doubling of sales. So it's quite devastating. And why would anybody be forced to trade on price? 
because they haven't got any kind of differentiation. So having a financially quantified value proposition, again, according to our research, enables you to close more deals, typically between 2 and 10%. It reduces the sales cycle by about 20%, reduces discounting by up to 30%, and it results in a massive increase in profitability. Now, in spite of this, Douglas, according to McKinsey, only 5% of companies have financially quantified value propositions. And I'll tell you why in a minute. My own research, you know, because we, I'm very lucky, I get large audiences, particularly in London, you know, with a thousand people at a time, and we use an audience response system. So you can get honest answers from them. And when I ask them about how many have got financially quantified value propositions, it's usually less than 2% of the audience. Now, I wonder. What on earth do marketers think their job is if it's not to develop financially quantified value proposition? I'll tell you what they're doing. They're messing about with digital and social media. (laughs) Um, I'm not saying that's not important because that's our future, but it isn't marketing. And those people that you spoke about at the conference uh, or when you're talking to them, most people, when you ask them those two questions about key target markets and sources of differential advantage, they go wittering on about their wretched products. Mm. And, you know, and all products today are excellent. I mean, it's absolute nonsense to talk about your products. You know, you don't get any differential advantage from your products. You get differential advantage from the way you actually speak to and relate to your customers and markets. Hence, my opening comments about what the process is about. Mm-hmm. Can we back up and remind listeners about why customers are so powerful today? Well, the point is that we moved many, many years ago to a buyer's world. I do a lot of work in Geneva with the European Institute of Purchasing. In my research club at Cranfield, I get 50% of all the presenters come along, our buying directors. And it is quite remarkable When you think about a buying director and you look at the plethora of people who've got similar products, you can choose to buy stuff from anywhere. They're only interested in companies that can create advantage for them. And that is the companies like uh, General Electric and 3M and um, SKF, those sorts of famous companies. They're the ones we've based our research on, and they're the ones that we've used as models for developing financially quantified value propositions. Because without financially quantified value propositions, they don't care. They're going to buy on price, full stop. That's the end of it. They can buy it anywhere. It's all the same. All products are excellent. That's not why they buy from these famous companies. And with a nod to the marketers listening, you talk in the book about why marketers should control the their company's websites, and I gather that there are still companies where they don't have control of their websites. But explain what you mean in the book where you uh, talk about the dreaded website copy as it relates to value propositions. Well, let me give you a quick example. If you look at, uh, I think I might have put this in the book, I can't remember. But if you take a a particular website, a a typical website, they talk about me, me, we do this, you know, you can trust us, we're good at this, we're good at that. We were founded a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, nobody nobody gives a damn, they don't care. I'll give you one typical one. This was an IT company, and on the website it talks about fast pad family, multimedia frads, PIX firewall, gigabit Ethernet, LAN support. I mean, for goodness sake, who gives a toss about gigabit Ethernet? Who knows what it is? And when you look at the actual market, you see that it is segmented 
into at least nine segments based on business, technical, reward and relief. And you've got different buyers in there like Save Me Budget, Business General, Save My Career, Conservative Technocrat, Technical Idealist, Radical Architect, Profit Engineer, Radical Thinkers, Business Perfectionist. The marketers should be doing that kind of work and then the website will work. But if that hasn't been done, that sort of fundamental work, uh, Douglas, what do you do? You go and mess about with digital, don't you? I'm going to spend a bit of time on digital. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, our, a, a, and our Facebook page is getting a lot of likes, even though our sales are down 30%. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's a joke that was in your earlier book. Yeah, yeah. we don't care that uh, the, the earnings are down by 25%, as long as you know that the likes on, on our Facebook site are up by 30%. And nobody cares, nobody cares about that stuff. Do you have any idea how many marketers I've made start instantly sweating when I start reading those passages from your books? <laughs> well, yes. I mean, the thing is, though, it's still happening today, Douglas. I won't say where I'm going, but I'm coming to America in 10 days' time, and I'm going to be talking to a, a major multinational technical company. And I know <clears throat> that most of the talk will be about what they sell, products. It'll be about the technology. And as I keep saying to everybody, it's not the technology or – I mean, because everybody's got the technology. It's the way you relate to your markets. It's about a deep understanding of how the market works, who the decision makers are, how they're segmented. And it, then it's developing value propositions for them. And those value propositions will be about the relationship that you have with them. I and mean, when you remember what I said, I think, in my earlier interview, that in America – Something like 76% of all corporate value out there is in intangibles. In other words, it's not on the balance sheet. What are those intangibles? It resides in relationships with customers, with the market. It resides in the brand name. It resides in all those wonderful, wonderful things that make the world leaders so great. And, you know, you're not going to get there. You, of course, you've got to have wonderful products. I mean, that goes without saying. <clears throat> but all I'm saying is, You've got to understand how you, you understand your market and work out how you relate to that market, and then you'll get rich, I promise you, because customers don't care about you. They don't care about what you say on your website. They only want one thing. They want you to help them make money. It's as simple as that. Mm -hmm. Now, as it relates to one of the earlier parts of the process where we start to determine all the different segments, like you just listed off a few is from that one example from the IT world. What is an example of the worst kind of buyer? And do you think that that's helpful for companies to then start to, to look and see, well, who are our best kind? Who do we want more of? Can you talk about that, that process that gets them past the idea of just wanting to sell the same way to everyone? Well, in the book, Douglas, there is a very important chapter. Don't give me a class test. I can't remember what it's called, but it's a very important chapter. And it makes the whole point that if you've got, say, 100% of buyers out there, and we won't describe what we mean by a buyer just for the moment, but if you actually look at the 100% of buyers, typically what you'll find is that at least 30% of them will only ever buy on price. That's how they are rewarded. It's how they're motivated. It's you know what the companies pay them to do. And trying to develop value propositions and build relationships with those kinds of uh, buyers are, is a complete waste of time. So we've got a whole chapter in there that shows you how to sort that lot out. 
In other words, you don't waste your time with them. Uh, you might have to trade on price for a number of reasons, but you don't start building deep relationships with them. You've got to have some process for doing that. And that chapter in the book takes you step by step through what that process is. The, of course, the good news is, and I discover this whenever I go to the European Institute of Purchasing, that more and more buying directors are actually beginning to understand the concept of value. The trouble is that it's the supply side that's way behind them. So the buying side has overtaken the supply side by leaps and bounds and is much more sophisticated. That's my experience. So could you talk then about the importance of understanding your customers prior to trying to build a value proposition? Maybe there's some examples. So there's several in the book, but there are examples of where you understand what the customer actually wants, and spoiler alert, it's not your product. There's other things they want. How important that is, some of the process before you start to get into the actual value proposition development. The reality, of course, is that if you look at you know where we based our research over you know over the past twenty years, the point is that if you look at any organization, and you take the way somebody like 3M deals with them, for example. I mean, we've had 3M directors coming to talk to our research club, the Key Account Management, Strategic Account Management Research Club. And they will take just one example. They will take something like Porter's value chain, and they will go through the whole thing the inbound logistics, the operations, the outbound logistics, the selling, after-sales service, you know the stuff. We, we all study it in MBA programs and everywhere in the world. But the point is, companies like 3M, they spend an enormous amount of time and money and resource in actually going through those processes with their customer with a fine tooth comb to look for ways in which they can either reduce costs or avoid costs, or add value. And just to get one little point out of the way, Douglas, it is a complete waste of time to ask them. Companies and customers have never known what they want. You know, people didn't ask Apple to invent iPads and iPods and right. things like that. They just made our lives more easy, didn't they? And more comfortable and more fun. And that's what the 3Ms and the General Electrics of the world do. They find ways of reducing costs, uh, avoiding costs, or adding value by going through the value chain. Now, that's just one small part of the process, but it's a logical, rational, diagnostic process. And there are other parts to it, which I won't bore you with, but that's what the best companies in the world do. And that's what we've based our book on. Mm -hmm. And incidentally, I just want to say this. Uh, why did we write the book in the first place? Because I looked very, very carefully at all the books and there were some wonderful books out there on value, but nobody actually told you how to do it. <laughs> and so, you know, seriously, you, know, you need a step-by-step -step diagnostic process that you can put data into and get some outputs. And the books that I've read are mostly descriptive and they're wonderful. You know, they make you think and all the rest of it, but they don't tell you how to do it. So that's, I hope, is the difference between our book and most of the others. At least I hope so anyway. Well, I know for us, we, as I read through it, I made margin notes saying, oh, we need to use this for this particular client. <laughs> so we're, <laughs> we're going to be stealing quite a bit of this with full attribution, uh, I should mention. And Go easy on yourself about the boring, and I want to explain why I say that. I have read books by 
other PhDs who've been on the podcast, and the interviews were great, and the books had good information. But this is just my hunch. I could be completely wrong. But I think that some of those PhDs have difficulty not writing for other PhDs. Your books do not have that. In fact, you even seem to have some sort of wariness of of wading too far into the academic points to keep it realistic for the people that are actually going to take this, which is a in in, in large parts a cookbook saying, showing exactly what to do and set them loose to do it. Well, I spend most of my life, Douglas, and have done. I mean, as you know, I used to be marketing and sales director of Canada Dry, so I've been there, done that. You know the difficulties of managing a a 200-strong sales force and a a massive marketing department, but you know all the problems. You know the problems of competitive pressures and, you know, government legislation, all that sort of stuff. And then if you've actually been there and done it and you've you've studied yourself a PhD and you then continue to work – via the business school community with some of the best companies in the world. I've spent the last 40 years working mostly at board level with the most fantastic organizations. Now, the good thing about that is that not only have I got the theoretical background, but I'm able to apply the theory in the real world. And that's what is lacking today, I think, in the business community at large, because the only way you can get promoted today in the business school community is by writing double-blind refereed Uh, scholarly articles, papers in three-star or plus journals. That means you lock yourself away having done your PhD. And, you know, if you should ever wander in front of an audience of hairy practitioners, you last for about five minutes because they're not interested in theory. Having said that, I'm a great believer in scholarly teaching. And I like to think that my colleagues and I, when we're in front of these big audiences, the reason we engage them is because we anchor the things we say in, you know, in scholarly research. What I think the difference is, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not me saying this, but it's an American academic, but it's absolutely true. The difference between what we do is the intellectual roots of our work lie in the rich soil of management science, not in the shallow, distorted, abused and sloppy concepts of management fads. And I love that because, as I said, the best people in the world can underpin all the things they say and the advice they give, you know, with with properly researched uh, antecedents. That's what many of the people who are passing through business schools today lack, I'm afraid, because they haven't had the, got their hands dirty in the real world. And, uh, you know, I, I think we're beginning to lose the plot about what business, what the role of business schools is. However, I think we're erring a bit from the from the plot here. So, <laughs> right. Well, I just wanted to say that the the book was exceedingly practical, and uh, I think there's almost like a BS test you must have given every part of it to say no, no, no. That's 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 not necessary. We don't need to go into all that right now. What I wanted to ask you to do though is if you could talk a bit about this one case study of the man trucks in the UK and their expansion, it seemed like such a great example of a company that broke into a what was a, a state or even declining market. And they were able to develop very meaningful value propositions, even to the point where they were proud to proclaim in their slogan, it's not about the trucks. Yep, absolutely. I mean, that's the whole point that we were making earlier on. 
And in fact, I think the point about the man little case history is that the truck itself is only 10% of the uh, cost of ownership. <laughs> and but, that, but that's true. And it's it's like, you know, it's like when you when you buy a ball bearing because if you read the the SKF example, that that's another chapter mm-hmm. from from the global vice president of SKF. If you look at that, it's exactly the same kind of thing. You can buy a truck anywhere. You can buy a ball bearing anywhere. You can buy an assembly anywhere. It's not about that. It's about the total cost of ownership. And it comes back into that sort of value chain analysis and all that sits around it and how you can avoid costs, reduce costs, and add value for them. And of course, the Le Mans truck example is precisely that. And it was a bit of a breakthrough in the, in the truck market. Now, of course, everyone's doing it. And you know the truck market has benefited enormously from it. But people don't buy trucks. Just like you know, Theodore Levitt said, people don't buy drills. They need holes. And, but you know, th- this is the old stuff. It's got to come back into fashion because I think we've uh, we've forgotten a lot of it. I'll tell you why we've forgotten a lot of it, Douglas, because marketers are buggering about. Oh, sorry, I shouldn't say that. Marketers are messing about with digital and social media. And <laughs> it's a great shame, I think, that they've got to get back to basics and start doing the kind of things that the SKF examples gave. I mean, SKF, if you just move for, to that case study, SKF, they're able to charge 50% more for a piece of steel that does exactly the same as any other bearing will do because they can prove by going through things like you know the the value chain they can prove that there is a massive massive saving over the life of the bearing and coming back to the point we were making there will be about 30% of buying directors wouldn't be interested in that because they're only interested in short term prices the good news is about 40, 45% of buying directors, if you can get your act together, they will respond to that message about value and total cost of ownership. So for someone who is working in marketing, and I know this is a bad case, I don't want to light your fuse here, they're hired at a company and they're said, okay, we don't know quite what you do, but go, go make things look pretty. Go do that that marketing thing. It seems like if a marketer were to then turn around and start to ask some of the questions in here, it would set them apart from most marketers and the the perception of marketers. For instance, if they were to come in and say, okay, well, let's get the CFO in here and talk to me about the profitability of the different types of customers we have. Who do we want to sell more to? Who do we want to break into? I mean, what what would you say to somebody that's suddenly been thrust into a situation like that? And I think there are a lot of listeners here who didn't study marketing. They've been thrust into this role of marketing, and they're trying to make heads or tails of it. What are some of the things that they could be doing to go in and start to steer their organization towards an understanding of using these value propositions? When I'm advising people who are newish to the, the world of marketing, I always suggest that they go right back to basics. And one of the things they should be doing as a starter is doing something you just mentioned um, a minute ago, which is if you look at your database and you split it into deciles according to volume, and then you do a little bit of work with the accountant and split it it into each decile into how much profit they make, you get the most extraordinary results, particularly if you use activity-based costing. Because, you know, the profits are made 
not on the product and the price, but profits and losses are made on the costs you, uh, you incur after the product leaves the factory. And if you get alongside an accountant, not necessarily the, the, the finance director, but alongside an accountant, that has a massive, massive impact on people's awareness of the work that needs to be done because we don't, most companies don't even know where they make money. Most companies today still do product profitability as opposed to customer profitability. That's a good starting point. And then the other thing is that we've got all the stats. I mean, if you look at Harvard Business Review, there are three or four articles in there that show that I mean, there's, there's one not so long ago that showed that of 30,000 new products that are launched in America, 90% of them fail because of the lack of basic things like market segmentation. So I always say to these people, why don't you not try and change the whole world, but take a part of the world which, which you're going to inhabit and just do some work on basic things like understanding the market, segmenting the market, and then, of course, if for part of it, you can actually develop a financially quantified value proposition, the sales force will love you to death. They will think the sun shines out of your proverbial. And that's what marketers are not doing because they're messing about with, um, with digital. But I'm saying they've got to do all that digital work and social work and uh, communications work. Of course they have. It's a fundamental part of their job. But we've got to get them back into the boardroom, Douglas, by doing the basic things. And the basic things are deep understanding of the market, stop wittering on about products, understand how the market works, do proper needs-based segmentation, understand the needs of the people in the segments, and then develop value propositions for them, which you can financially quantify. Once you've done that, I'll tell you, it changes the fortunes of any organization anywhere in the world, and you will then be revered as part of a very valuable you know, discipline, marketing. But as long as you're messing about with social media and all the rest of it, because it's an important part of the job, that's not going to happen. So I advise these people to get back to basics. As a starter for 10, why don't some of them just go back and buy Philip Kotler's book and start on page one and work through that? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's been going since about, I don't know, 1956, 1960. It's a wonderful book. His textbook? Yeah, his textbook. Yeah. I think he published it in 67. Yeah, something like that. It's up to 15 or 20 editions now, so... Yeah, my marketing plans book is uh, in its seventh edition and it's only sold half a million copies. So I'm pale into insignificance alongside Philip, whom I'm proud to call a friend and colleague. He's a, a great supporter and he's a marvelous man being up there on stages at the age of 86, I think you said he was. I think he may um, be 88 or 89. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful man. But I'm saying, you know, his work needs to be revisited because it's it's a solid and as applicable as it was in 1967 when he first came onto the market. Yes. So, so what I'm saying is, D Douglas, we've got to get back. Our community has to get back to basics. And it's almost impossible to develop a financially quantified value proposition if you haven't got the basics right. You've really got to under understand how a market buys, how they're segmented, and then you can start the process that we outline in the book, not outline, we spell out so carefully in the book, developing financially quantified value propositions for them. Mm -hmm. So let's let's get back in the boardroom and start doing something useful. Yes, and let me just add to that. There was a study by the Fournays Group a few years back. I believe they're in based in London. And it talked about the 
perception of marketers by CEOs. And as I recall, it was about 80% of CEOs didn't trust their marketers to understand the financial realities of their companies. They didn't seem to understand where revenue came from. And there have been a few other books on the podcast that talk about this perception of marketers. One is by a gentleman, another academic you may know, Jagdish Sheth, who wrote yeah. Four A's of Marketing. Yeah, great man. And, and, uh, and he just turned 80. So uh, I think you've got about a year on him. So, My God, we're, 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 all, we're all about to die, Douglas. <laughs> not, not from where I can see. <laughs> but there, there are other books that talked about how, uh, again, like you're talking about, these marketers, they prattle on about social media or branding and all these sorts of things, and that is not relevant. And in this one book called The 12 Powers of a Marketing Leader by Thomas Barda and Patrick Barwise, Yes, the one that you reviewed, not the not you you did an interview with them. I did I did one with Barda and Barwise, I believe is is there in London, and they talked. And I about- reviewed the, I reviewed the book, Douglas. Oh, okay, okay. I reviewed the book and uh, said lots and lots of fav- favorable things about it. It was oh. a good book. Maybe that's why I read it because I saw your <laughs> name in the front of it. But uh, <laughs> they talk about marketers. If you want to break out of that perception of being what I called arts and crafts party planners who work in the make it pretty department, you've got to get in the revenue camp. And that's part of this talk that I gave. It talked about how marketers have an image problem. And if they don't get in the revenue camp, they're always going to have it. And that's why I throw this book at them. I, I don't really throw it. I, it's, it's a fun presentation. But now there's this one. It seems to me that if a marketer reads these two books and a few others that I could recommend, and it will change their career forever in terms of helping their organization to grow and be more profitable and to make obscene amounts of money, but also become associated with revenue as opposed to uh, a cost. Yeah, absolutely right. And can I tell you that my co-author, I've got to be careful what I say about him because at the moment he is doing quite a lot of work in a major organization. You will have heard, of course, of the National Health Service. And he is involved in buying or helping the National Health Service to secure major contracts. And he and his colleagues are absolutely devastated when somebody is making a bid for something like a 30 million pound contract. And you ask them basic questions like, what's the return on investment? What's the payback? And so on and so forth. And they look at you as if you've just landed from the planet Mars. And, you know, one of the things we've done in the book, I don't know whether you got that far or whether you, whether you, whether you, I in fact read the whole book, yes. Yeah, because (laughs) you'll notice, you'll notice that we've developed um, a most fantastic, it's not a spreadsheet, it's much more sophisticated than that, uh, but it shows you, we've also developed software that goes with it to work out the, the, you know, the, the benefits, the financial benefits, so that you can express it all on one sheet of paper, but the problem with companies that don't do that is that they don't know how to do it. And it, the, uh, I mean, I, one of the things that uh, strikes me today, and I don't know what it's like in America, but I suspect it's exactly the same as it is here in Britain. We know that today, whether we like it or not, success, commercial success is measured in terms of shareholder value added, having taken account of the time value of money, the cost of capital. And, of course, the risks associated with whatever the project is. Now, one of the things that gets me is that most marketers don't even know what the cost of capital is in their organization. How can you ever, since that is the major hurdle that any dollar or pound or euro has to cross 
how on earth can you manage anything if you don't know what the cost of capital is and you don't know how to calculate things like net present value and you can't calculate the risks and you cannot actually calculate whether what you're doing and proposing is creating or destroying shareholder value. I mean, that sort of stuff to me is it's, it's the absolute foundation of successful marketing. So you're quite right. And I spent quite a lot of my latter years in the business school community, working with our finance uh, community, our finance professors. And I've even written a book on marketing and, uh, and, and uh, finance. And don't worry, I'm not asking you to read it. Because um, uh, <laughs> once, once you put it down, Douglas, you'll not be able to pick it up. Um, <laughs> but, but the point I'm making is that you've, you've hit the nail on the head. You're absolutely right. What is it that drives business? It is finance. And it always will drive business. And it's we're not going to escape from the problem that we've got, which like in the UK, we've got 12 times more accountants per capita than Germany. And you don't need to ask which country has been more successful over the past, you know, since the Second World War. But, you know, if we're, if we're going to, we have to invade that territory by bringing a bit of common sense to it, by making all of that financial stuff market-focused, customer-focused. And that's what I think that book is really intended to make people do. And I should add that your book, the earlier book that we talked about, uh, Malcolm McDonald on marketing planning, it's one of the very few books I've actually read twice. So I read one of these every week or more, and I love doing it. But that was I, ho I hope it's not because I use long words, Douglas. No, no, no you're very <laughs> careful not to. It's it's written for a knuckleheaded businessman like me. But I had read that book. I had I received a digital version, and then something came up with a client where I said I've got to go buy a copy of it now because we were actually using it. And so I read the whole thing again. And these aren't, these aren't long books. You're, you're very yeah. uh, careful with your words and, and trying not to put any unnecessary information in there. But this is one that's probably going to be read again and it's probably going to have, get a bit, uh, dog eared. So Professor McDonald, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? It would be that customers don't care about you. They care about themselves. And they want to know, how will dealing with you make them better off? In other words, how are you going to create advantage for them? That's, that's what the book is about. That's the message I want them to take away from it. And it's not simple to do, but you explain every single piece of it uh, in this book. Are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or writing forwards to or <laughs> looking forward to reading? Well, yes. I mean, what's shaped my life is, you know, Shakespeare and Keats and Wordsworth and Matthew Arnold and Alexander Pope and Milton and all that, those wonderful people. And we should add that you were, uh, you studied English literature at Oxford. I studied English language and literature at Oxford. You're quite right. And there's a wonderful book, a wonderful book called Writing Marketing Literacy Lessons from Academic Authorities. It's SAGE 2015. It's written by a guy called uh, Professor Stephen Brown. And I'll tell you, it's civilized decency, sophisticated scholarship. He caresses the English language in a unique way. He tantalizes his readers. He educates them with his beautiful, elegant English. And he writes about Roe Alderson, Theodore Levitt, Philip Kotler, Shelby Hunt, 
Morris Holbrook. And he, he says what these great marketing authors actually do. And then he compares, he doesn't use my name personally, but he compares them to people like you and me. And he calls us scrubbers, clerks, clones, pen pushers, mere conveyors of facts versus those who emancipate us from the past. So that's a book you've really got to pick up and have a look at. It's very entertaining, very, very educational. And it talks about these great people, Alderson, you know, Roe Alderson, Levitt, Kotler, Shelby Hunt, and, uh, and of course, Holbert. I was not aware of that. Yeah, and there's one other one. It's, um, it's called, I've mentioned The 12 Powers of Marketing Leaders, which, which is a book I liked and learned a lot from. Me too. But there's another one, just hit the, the, the world. It's called 100 Ways to, to Improve Customer Experience. It's by called, a guy called Martin Newman, Kogan Page, 2018. And the reason it's important is because I guess the same is happening in the US as is happening in uh, Britain. But our high streets are getting completely devastated. They're beginning to look like ghost towns because of the impact of, um, you know, online online retailing. And this book is about how we can get back retailing back uh, into the high street again. And it's a bit, you know, customer service is a bit like having a shower, isn't it? You've got to do it every day to make it worthwhile. So <laughs> well said. <laughs> so, so it's called 100 Ways to Improve Customer Experience. Martin Newman, Kogan Page, 2018. You know, it's a very innovative book because it embraces most of the new technology. Oh, terrific. Well, we'll make sure to include links to these at your episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com so everyone can find them. And I may be doing some more uh, author outreach uh, now, that I've, now that I've heard about them. How best can listeners learn more about you and this newest book? Well, you know, what we have done, um, we books uh, have a limited reach. We have actually produced software and we've produced online workshops, uh, particularly on value propositions. And if anybody is interested in going through a properly structured educational program on value propositions, the best thing to do is just to, to get in touch with me, probably via email at m.mcdonald.com at cranfield.ac.uk. The other one, you could, uh, if you're going to write anything about this, Douglas, you could put www.90dayactionplan.com. So the two things, m.mcdonald at cranfield.ac.uk. I always answer my emails. And the other one is www.90dayactionplan.com. And uh, they can learn more about um, the book, about the software, about the online courses. And I'm having a whale of a time at uh, 81. Doug, I'm, I'm really enjoying life and uh, I don't want to retire. <laughs> I don't think that's going to be possible for you to retire. It just doesn't seem to be in your... Uh in your nature. But we'll include to links to all of those things on your episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com, including uh, things like uh, any social media, despite what you've said about social media, maybe your LinkedIn profile. But they'll, it'll be very easy for folks to contact you, learn more about you, and, and get in touch. And for the listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your podcast player of choice, like Apple Podcasts, all the links to the books and everything else can be found by going to this episode in your podcast player and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is Malcolm McDonald on Value Propositions, How to Develop Them, How to Quantify Them. The authors are Malcolm McDonald and Grant Oliver. Professor McDonald, thank you very much for joining us again on the Marketing Book Podcast. 
My pleasure, Douglas, and it's always a pleasure to talk to anybody in America. And that closes the book on episode 210 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor, Blinkist, to support the Marketing Book Podcast and start your free Blinkist trial or get 20% off your yearly plan. Visit Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast or just click on the link at MarketingBookPodcast.com. And please join us next time as we welcome Bob Hoffman back to the Marketing Book Podcast for the third time to talk about his newest book, Laughing at Advertising. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This episode was produced by Sean Armstrong. I'll tell you, you know, one of the biggest impacts on my life, particularly my professional life, Douglas, was when I went, I think it was 1984, I went to a professor's colloquium at Harvard. And they weren't just marketing professors. There were, you know, professors of geography and philosophy and um, psychology and all that stuff. And it was about teaching. And there was a very, very big colloquium. And I tell you what I admired. I've never, ever got over it, how erudite they were, how clever, how their command of the English language, how experienced they were. And I came away from that thinking I'm going to have to set my sights a bit higher based on that two, three days at Harvard Business School. So you've got some wonderful, wonderful people in America. And, you know, I love mixing with them. And I'm a very lucky boy being invited to America so frequently. Well, that's great. That's great. Well, uh, you know, appreciate hearing that. And it's funny, uh, my great-great-great-grandfather fought against the British at Yorktown uh, with the French in the American Revolution. And then his son fought the British at the Battle of New Orleans in the War of 1812. In fact, on the my home, we have a sword he took from a British officer. I don't know the condition of the British officer when he took it. <laughs> and I'd like to be able to say that, you know, since then, we've, we've kind of buried the hatchet. We, <laughs> we've gotten yeah. along really, really quite well with, uh, with our British friends. But, you know, when I was at Harvard, my wife went on the tours, you know, around Boston and places like that. And the guide was saying things, quite a big group of, and the guide was saying things like, this is where the English slaughtered the so-and-so, and this is where the English killed so-and-so. And the guide said to my wife, where are you from? She said, Wales. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't want to say England. <laughs>